Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC, AAPA, and AMAPRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button on the webinar console. Otherwise, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, navigate to our multi-specialty episodes, and select the webinar to claim credit. Today's learning objective is to discuss the likely impact of SARS-CoV-2 infection in the near future. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, as well as in-kind support from DKB Med. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, the Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Awater, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And I thought today, here we are in March of 2022, two years after uh, the first uh, major changes in our lives due to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And one of the most common questions now from my patients and even from colleagues are, what's next? And I don't think anyone has a clear idea of that future, but I thought there was clearly some lessons learned from the pandemic that a recent article in Science, I thought nicely captured and had some graphics that I thought would share because it also uh, frames what I think should be hopefully both scientific and government or regulatory thinking so that can we be better prepared if such a crisis were to hit our shores again or um, even uh, as this uh, pandemic will no doubt evolve into what we call just an endemic virus being one of the viruses that now join the pantheon of uh, respiratory viruses. So uh, this graphic, I think, highlights some of the ways that some, uh, some have thought about the pandemic. For example, when we were first grappling with it, we wanted to know, can this be snuffed out? Just like the original SARS-CoV-1, which we were quite lucky, was more virulent than what we've been experiencing even at the start. But uh, because almost everyone got ill, it was easy to identify and contain. But of course, what happened with this pandemic is many people had minimal symptoms. And this is what led the virus to be unfortunately so successful in its spread. And yes, indeed, it turned into a pandemic, but we were only beginning to understand this particular coronavirus at the time. Then if you go to the second gray area, this was all, remember the flattening the curve. Gosh, you know, we don't know what will work. We're not quite sure how it's transmitted. Remember, we were scrubbing floors and doing deep cleans. And, and then there was a crisis over masks that uh, initially were directed towards healthcare facilities, which were definitely under siege, uh, and supplies were short. Um, and so it was all trying to help prevent spread, mainly by limiting what people do. And this is, of course, when lockdowns uh, largely occurred in many countries. And then there was riding out the waves, meaning, gosh, uh, we sort of had a better handle what was going on, but 
even as we dealt with it, um, the virus was adapting and we didn't really know it, uh, but we'll soon come to learn that given the sheer numbers of infections that uh, the virus was positioning itself uh, for success uh, with future and larger waves. And then of course, uh, just starting over a year ago, we had the miracle of mRNA vaccines and they looked spectacular. I mean, you might remember that 95% vaccine efficacy touted from the first MRI, mRNA vaccines, and we thought this would clearly be an hallelujah moment. However, although very effective early on, it needed a while to be distributed. And then, of course, this particular vaccine only directed itself against the spike protein, and that spike protein uh, was able in six sex and uh, succession of different viral isolates uh, did change such that it could adapt and still be a successful infection in a large period of a large number of people. But uh, importantly, uh, because the virus mutated, uh, it also changed some of its characteristics and. Uh, certainly the last Omicron wave responsible for the huge spike in January, which was so much more uh, contagious, uh, was not quite as virulent as Alpha or Delta. I think the other aspect that has surprised almost everyone who's a virologist or public health official is the sheer speed at the replacement of these uh, variants and the success that some of them have had. Now, a, a beta variant, which worried many of us, especially from South uh, Africa, pretty much fizzled out. Uh, gamma, which was problematic in South America, uh, had a bit of a rise and then also uh, did not become the dominant worldwide variant. But uh, starting with the ancestral strain that you see, 614D, evolved to a single mutation G, all of these increased transmissibility. Uh, and sequentially, alpha was more transmissible than 614G and Omicron even more than Delta. And of course, we now have a subvariant of Omicron, BA2, which probably has an R naught, a north of eight, which is the estimate for Omicron. Uh, and so this too looks like it may become a quick replacement just uh, based on the sheer uh, ability of higher viral loads and more frequent transmission. Now, you might look at all this and think it's a nice linear story, but when people uh, have tried to uh, sequence viral isolates and then align them in what's uh, a, a phylogenetic tree, uh, you can see if the gray is the original ancestral strain, some have evolved directly, such as 614G, but then you look at Omicron and they still trace to the ancestral strain rather than from uh, alpha or delta, for example. So I think this is uh, uh, something that bears watching and just means that um, we don't know if the strain circulating now might lead to newer variants. This is very unpredictable. 
And to say that Delta led to Omicron is just not the case. Um, and people have wondered, well, did Omicron come from an immunodeficient patient uh, that had been harboring virus for a long time? That's a very reasonable suspicion. And so there may be certainly future surprises, but the hope is that they won't uh, be anything as severe uh, as earlier variants, even if they are potentially with different levels of contagion. So what happens next is I've mentioned it does look like there's increasing transmissibility, but thank goodness, both uh, infection-acquired immunity and vaccine-induced immunity is given protection. And typically when this happens, and let's say we didn't even have vaccines, guess who becomes the predominant a group that has clinical infections, it's the youngsters. Uh, and this is true for many respiratory viruses and for influenza, which has been around forever. It's young people who may not be as much immunized that are the ripe playing grounds for these viruses. So this is where this may lead uh, down the road. Um, and uh, these future variants generally work hard to escape protective immunity. So for example, why we're getting uh, updated influenza shots annually is uh, because the variant um, influenzas uh, recombine each year and uh, so on, mainly due to immune pressure. Now, luckily, we do have vaccines, boosters, monoclonal antibodies, antiviral drugs. All these will help protect from severe infection. Whether we need uh, refined boosters with different genetic information, uh, additional boosters, uh, time will tell, and that's often a uh, clearly um, uh, frequently asked question. Now, taking a look back, as I said, what we could do to prepare in this case is to, uh, whether we have a new or known pathogen, is harness what we've learned and prepare with candidate drug selections for uh, many viruses, for example, um, it could be adenoviruses, influenza viruses, and uh, get ahead of the game so we already have a good idea of what might work or not. And then uh, a stockpile these, and so we can have very fast deployment and perhaps even interrupt transmission into um, widely worldwide, even if it's highly infectious. Uh, there. So these are just some of the strategies that I think we've certainly learned on, leaned on, and learned from uh, our uh, drug development, which has really been miraculous for both vaccines and drugs. Um, and I think it's uh, often underappreciated, but we could actually prepare and uh, pre-position, which is of course what military does when they're uh, readying themselves. So I, I hope that's sort of helpful and, uh, and certainly more on the theoreticals than, than on uh, an individual practical basis for our patients, uh, but uh, I think uh, nicely captures uh, some of the high points over the uh, last two years, uh, Faith. Thank you so much. We are now going to move into our Q&A. So our first learner question here is, how does immunity after infection compare with immunity after vaccination? Yeah, Faith, so my message here, clearly for anyone with risk factors for severe COVID-19, including age or comorbidities, is if you've had COVID-19, we don't know what the future will hold, uh, whether uh, new variants will uh, escape, but 
we know from infection acquired immunity that that was not as protective. If you were infected early on with an ancestral strain or even alpha, um, that protection was not nearly as good relative to uh, vaccine compared um, when uh, Omicron was at play. Uh, the best immunity that we have found in terms of antibody levels are people that have had infection and then uh, had an immunization. Usually you just need one dose of the mRNA vaccines. And indeed, uh, blood banks are looking for precisely these people because people that have had infection and immunization tend to have some of the highest antibody titers, which is, as uh, far as we know, are a surrogate to help protect against severe illness uh, with any of the known variants so far. So that's really the recipe to offer yourself the best protection uh, if you've been um, uh, unlucky enough to be infected in the past. Okay, and our final question. Now that we have oral antivirals and assuming they're becoming more available, is there a role for monoclonal antibodies for treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19? Well, uh, Faith, uh, definitely yes, but it's a changing landscape. Monoclonal antibodies are the class of drugs most affected by variants because changes in the spike protein are meant to evade immunity. And that's indeed what's happened as we've lost monoclonal antibodies that had been infected and now rely on a, a, a smaller number, such as citrovimab and bevtilavimab right now. Uh, now, the oral antivirals, the one that has very good uh, impact on early infection is Paxlovid. However, that drug has specific issues in terms of drug-drug interactions so that many patients who might benefit are on medications that preclude safe administration. Uh, for example, transplant patients or patients on antiarrhythmic drugs. So in those situations, monoclonal antibodies uh, remain with very similar impact in preventing severe COVID-19 as Paxlovid and are completely safe, but do require an infusion. So as long as a drug like Paxlovid, which relies on ritonavir, or a suicide inhibitor of CYP3A4, uh, has vast potential to interfere with a large number of drugs. Uh, monoclonals, I think, will be here to stay. Now, if there's an oral drug that lacks that kind of significant CYP3A4 or other cytochrome inhibition or induction, uh, then that may well supplant uh, the need for monoclonal antibodies. Molnipravir, uh, which has a very clean side effect profile, no drug interactions, um, is a drug that I think has been more widely used because it's easier to understand and give, but its efficacy is not nearly as good, but probably still has a role, especially in people that cannot have uh, access to the monoclonal antibodies. Dr. Alwater, thank you so much for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit us at covid19.dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Alwater. Uh, thank you, Faith, and uh, uh, hopefully the topics uh, become easier and uh, we uh, continue to uh, fare well as this pandemic continues to evolve.